All right, I think we are ready to start. Hello and welcome to those who are joining us on Zoom and those who are joining us live on Facebook to Dialogue Firesides on January 17th, 2021 with Benjamin Park. With his remarks today titled, Mormonism's Many Modernisms, What the Faith's Alternative Trajectories in the Early 20th Century Tell Us About the 21st. I'm Taylor Petrie, conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin, Linda Hoffman Kimball, Chris Kimball, and Andy Pitcher Davis are also part of our group today. We're using our webinar, webinar format uh, and we're recording this program and we'll post the recording as soon as it's available. More than 50 years of dialogue content, articles, essays, poetry, and art is available online at dialoguejournal.com. These Dialogue Fireside sessions are posted on the Dialogue Journal YouTube channel and our podcast feed in your favorite podcast app and at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. If you're enjoying these sessions, please consider supporting Dialogue by subscription or donation. We'll include the dialoguejournal.com address and a number that you can text in the chat if you'd like to make a donation uh, with your tech, through text messaging. With that, I want to make a special announcement. As you all know, we had decided to bring our weekly gospel, dialogue gospel study sessions to an end in December 2020 and replace them with the monthly dialogue firesides. However, we have heard from so many of you how important those weekly lessons have been. Yesterday, the dialogue board met and we have decided to bring back the dialogue gospel study on second and fourth Sundays each month, starting next week with Kiff Augustine. We're so grateful for our dedicated audience and we'll also be continuing the monthly Dialogue Firesides. We're excited to host our second, our, I'm sorry, our first of the year uh, Dialogue Fireside with our distinguished speaker, Benjamin Park. The views expressed today are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the Dialogue Foundation or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Benjamin Park received his BA in English and History from Brigham Young University, a Master's in Theology from the University of Edinburgh, and a Master's in Politics in, and PhD in History from the University of Cambridge. He is currently an Assistant Professor of History at Sam Houston State University and the co-editor of the Mormon Studies Review. His most recent books are Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, which appeared with W.W. Norton Liverlight, and A Companion to American Religious History, published by Blackwell. He is currently working on two projects, A History of Religion and American Abolition with Princeton University Press, and A General Survey of Mormonism in America with W.W. Norton, from which tonight's material is drawn. He's also a proud member of the Dialogue Board. After Ben's remarks, we will be opening up for a Q&A. You may submit comments in the chat throughout, the, throughout the, uh, the conversation tonight, but especially at the end, and I will help moderate those comments. Please be respectful in the chat and discussion. We'll begin with an opening music number, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms by Mahalia Jackson, and our invocation will be offered by Linda Hoffman Kimball, a member of the Dialogue Board. At the conclusion of our meeting, our benediction will be offered by Andy Pitcher Davis, art editor of Dialogue and a member of the board at Dialogue. I uh, will turn the time over to, or we'll, we'll begin with our music. 
Okay. All right, I will begin with a prayer. Our kind, gracious, compassionate God, we thank thee for this time to be together through this venue with our hearts united. We pray for thy blessing to be on Ben as he speaks and presents the material he has prepared. We ask also for thy help in empowering us with compassion and courage and goodwill for the significant events of this coming week. And we say and pray for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. First, want to say how grateful I am to be here with this dialogue firesides. I know it's a, a tough act to follow with our previous three, and I want to thank uh, both my fellow colleagues on the dialogue board, and especially Taylor for putting on these firesides and the gospel study sessions that I'm so excited to see are going to continue this next year. I've recently, I've recently spent a bit of time reading through the 1940s correspondence of Juanita Brooks and Dale Morgan, two 20th century saints born in the church who were growing increasingly concerned with where the institution was headed. They were both particularly irked by the recent rise of J. Reuben Clark, whose approach to both politics and history struck them as wrongheaded. Morgan and Brooks were both employed through New Deal funds to investigate Utah's past, and they feared Clark distrusted both their employer and their agenda. They weren't wrong. But while Morgan was ready to give up the cause and no longer identify as a member of the church, Brooks refused to go quietly. Quote, I think it is as much my church as it is J. Reuben Clark's or anyone else's, she wrote Morgan. Tonight, I'd like to talk about historical trajectories that went unfulfilled, roads left untaken. It is a common misunderstanding about history to think that everything pointed directly to where we are now, a predetermined march toward a particular moment in the future that we now inhabit. But as demonstrated by the best historians, as well as argued by America's top philosophers like the creators of HBO's Westworld, History takes unexpected twists and turns, points of progress followed by periods of reversals, all dependent on individual personalities, shifting contexts, and unpredictable consequences. It is the task of the historian to show not only how we got here, but also why we didn't get there, or some other point that might have appeared all too definite in the past. The specific road not taken that I am going to discuss tonight concerns Mormonism's Americanization project. The idea that, that, more, that the church assimilated into American culture during the decades between 1890 and 1930 has become gospel in Mormon studies, persuasively outlined in Thomas Alexander's magisterial Mormonism in Transition and fleshed out by a host of other important books and articles. The end of polygamy and theocracy and the embrace of America's monogamy and political systems, this reasoning goes, allowed church leaders and members alike to become less unique and more American, setting the stage for their rightful designation as the most American religion, a common identity, a common idea most recently trumpeted in the Atlantic a few weeks ago. 
Now, I have not come tonight to slay the sacred cow. It may be common for young historians to make grandiose revisionist claims that challenge accepted frameworks, but this is a particular hill that might be too steep to climb. So I'll leave that to other egotistical scholars whose wit and will I lack. But what I do want to highlight is that the type of assimilation Mormonism embraced was not a predetermined one because there were numerous American cultures to which they could have attached. If anything, Mormon historians have been too willing to imagine a monolithic America that Mormonism embraced, ignoring the fact that the broader society was nearly as divided along cultural lines then as it is now. So in choosing which aspects of American culture to drape around ourselves and proving patriotic bona fides, Mormons were simultaneously choosing which aspects to leave ignored. And yet it's even more layered than that, because what I see during the era of Mormon transition is not a carefully chosen path on the one hand and a strictly rejected path on the other, but rather numerous paths being paved at once, an era of experimentation and experimentors as influential figures pulled and tugged and fought over the faith's divergent directions. Tonight, I'll only highlight two individuals whose proposed highways seem to have a bright future before reaching a dead end as construction was redirected and prioritized elsewhere. And in highlighting the tenuous nature of these past avenues, I'll close by raising possibilities of future roads yet unconceived. In the wake of Wilford Woodruff's polygamy and political manifestos in the 1890s, which publicly embraced American practices of monogamy and the two-party system, there were certainly a number of Mormons who mourned a lost era, feeling that they had forfeited their birthright. However, there were also many saints who embraced new possibilities, hoping that it was finally time to merge Mormon and modern ways of knowing. Few were as anxious to embrace the new age as Amy Brown Lyman, seen here on the left. A daughter of one of Utah County's most prominent patriarchs, she was one of 25 kids born to three wives that lived close together in the stereotypical polygamous family. Then in 1888, at the tender age of 16, she made the 10 mile voyage south to Provo in an old farm wagon to attend Brigham Young Academy. It was there that she met Richard Lyman on the right, the son and grandson of apostles. Though Amy, at only five foot three, was more than a foot shorter than the rugged Richard, she was immediately taken by his appearance and charm, and he was similarly swept up by her wit and energy. They soon became a couple, and a few years later, after Richard finished a master's degree at the University of Michigan, they were sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. Yet while she quickly became ensconced in the Utah's elite circles, Amy Lyman was unsatisfied with traditional norms. Reflecting a new generation of American women, she was not necessarily against marriage, but she certainly was not going to be defined by it either. At one point prior to her wedding, she admitted to a friend in a very candid letter about not being, quote, ready at all for the event as she wanted to, quote, see and hear a few things before I sink into oblivion. 
She tried to keep up to that pledge, joining a number of social clubs, continuing to teach and yearning for a chance to escape what she saw as suffocating surroundings. That chance finally came in 1902, when on the way to New York for Richard to start a PhD program at Cornell, the couple spent a summer at the University of Chicago, where they both enrolled in classes. While Amy took courses on Shakespeare and the Bible as literature, her most transformative experience came in a seminar on sociology that taught that all of modernity's problems were rooted in social issues that could be overcome through coordinated strategies. Amy thereafter became obsessed with a progressive quest to solve the nation's ills through deliberate reform and collaborative effort between private and public organizations. At one point, she was even given the field assignment to visit Jane Addams's Hull House, seen in this slide here. Adams represented a new age of reformers at the end of the 19th century who bemoaned the shortcomings of laissez-faire capitalism and ineffectual government intervention, instead arguing for that more education, organization, and experimentation could transform the world around them. This sentiment's fusion with Christianity resulted in what many termed the social gospel movement as religious institutions cropped up and fought for temperance, education reform, and poor relief. As part of uh, God's work, they argued, took place in the slums that modern America had created. As part of these efforts, Adams founded her whole house, a, so a social settlement for women who desired to work and live in the city and save its citizens. And now visiting that storied space and personally learning from Adams, Amy Brown Lyman believed she had found Mormonism's future, a commitment to modernity's progressive platform. Seven years later, Lyman was called to serve on the board of directors for the Relief Society and tasked to reform an institution that she had previously seen as outdated. Many of the women of Lyman's generation had decreased participation with the society and the aged leaders worried that they needed to quickly adapt or else they might become obsolete. When Emmeline B. Wells became president, she empowered Lyman to modernize the organization, which she did through incorporating her lessons in Chicago. Like many modernists, Lyman believed religion's best chance at relevance came through appropriating secular modes of material reform. Teaming with other women who shared her activist spirit, the Relief Society quickly implemented new projects and policies that spoke to contemporary concerns. They established a home for working girls in Salt Lake City, supported local officials in pushing for free kindergarten, teamed with the Relief Society to train local Relief Societies, and even established their own downtown headquarters to combat urban ills, a neighborhood house patterned off of Adams's Hull House. Perhaps most controversially, they transformed the society's publications agenda, halting the long-storied exponent newspaper and replacing it with new periodicals that detail that dedicated most of its pages to what they called the temporal things of the kingdom in order to attract, quote, younger women who will be our future leaders. It was a clear pitch for relevance in the modern world. Lyman's efforts were not without detractors within the society. Susa Young Gates, for instance, claimed Lyman exhibited a, quote, real ignorance of the fundamentals of the gospel. Note that term fundamental, that's gonna come up a bit later. And that Lyman was willing, quote, to make the church a tail to the Gentile kite. 
Gates was particularly critical of Lyman's reliance upon federal assistance programs in pursuing secular reform. Another critic claimed, quote, the spirit of the gospel and religion seemed to have disappeared within the Relief Society, and quote, it seems to be a social welfare organization. Yet even with her persistent critics, who notably only grew louder after the decade progressed, what Lyman and her supporters accomplished during the 1920s, let me show a picture of her leading some Relief Society women. What Lyman and her supporters accomplished during the 1920s was nothing short of remarkable. Demonstrating the overlap between government and ecclesiastical intervention, Lyman was elected to the Utah State Legislature in 1923 while still holding her prominent role uh, in the Relief Society, just one of American women who rushed into public office in the wake of the 19th Amendment. She then worked with the national and state agencies to embed the Relief Society within these government efforts, establishing over 100 health centers, nearly 300 dental clinics, and holding over 2,200 health conferences. She sent apprentices to train at the New York School of Philanthropy and the University of Chicago School of Social Work. When the nation slid into the Great Depression, Lyman praised FDR's New Deal legislation as a necessary solution, urging members in general conference to support, quote, the government loyally in its heroic efforts in making its untrodden trodden paths to correct economic and social evils. Her work eventually resulted in the Salt Lake City's Relief Society being designated as a distinct unit within the Department of Public Welfare. Lyman, oh, yeah. Lyman represented a generation of American women devoted to reforming, the, reforming society through modernist means. Her willingness to work with government agencies and appropriate their tools and draw on their funded enabled Utah to deal with lingering social problems, issues that only escalated with the onset of the Great Depression. Like her beloved mentor, Jane Addams, Lyman was devoted to addressing the ills that plagued America between the wars, attempting to prove that modern required religion to take a much more pragmatic and less dogmatic approach to the world. The modern Mormon, she explained to the Relief Society, shared with the broader nation the same sequence when turning for help. First, their relatives, second, the government, and third, the church, all working in unison. Like Lyman, Franklin Harris was determined to bring reform to his beloved institution. Born in 1884 in Benjamin, Utah, just down the road from Provo, Harris received his first degree from Brigham Young Academy before moving east to earn a PhD in chemistry from Cornell. His first job was teaching zoology and entomology at Utah State Agricultural College in Logan, but he had always hoped to return home. So he jumped at the opportunity to become BYU's president in 1929. 1921. Harris was not yet 40 years old and remained a boyish, clean-shaven face with a full head of perfectly coiffed hair, but his youthful demeanor did not slow his earnest desire to modernize the institution. He was the first person with a PhD, as well as the first monogamist, to lead the school, and his mission was for the university to follow the example of other institutions and embrace the modern academy. Quote, we must make of this institution a great center of religious thought, he declared, and should, quote, have in our library the leading writers of religious subjects from all parts of the world and all denominations. The church president at the time, 
Heber J. Grant, was initially pleased with this vision. Grant was far more pragmatic than his predecessors and readily, and readily admitted his lack in intellectual endeavors and academic pedagogy, instead granting university leaders a wide berth. Harris took advantage of this latitude and immediately went to work. In his first year, he hired five new professors with doctorates, granted funding for other faculty to head S head east to receive advanced degrees, provided research sabbaticals, and modernized the curriculum. He introduced new courses like evolution and religion, philosophy and religion, and comparative religions. Indeed, of the 41 religion courses taught in the 1920s, only seven dealt directly with the LDS faith, and the new bachelor's program in religion became the most popular on campus. Harris promised that his administration would prioritize, quote, academic freedom without any attempt to avoid issues. As a result of his efforts, BYU finally received university accreditation in 1928. Assisting Harris was the church's superintendent of education, Adam S. Benyon, another young administrator who held a doctorate in literature. Together, Benyon and Harris modernized the church education system, transferring a number of schools to state control and establishing what we now know as the modern day institute program. Benyon hoped to place quote, scholarly books dealing with historical and religious analysis in all of these new institute libraries, as well as encourage teachers not to be afraid of the latest theories coming from academia. His replacement, Joseph Merrill, a Chicago and Johns Hopkins trained physicist, only continued Benyon's mission after 1928. But perhaps the most poignant example of these new intellectual currents took place every summer at Aspen Grove, a camping ground owned by BYU nestled in the back of the majestic Mount Timpanogos. For six weeks every summer, LDS instructors would gather to learn about the latest developments in the scholarly world of religion. They slept in tents, hiked the trails, and learned about academia's trendy theories. Though apostles like John Widsow and James Talmadge were frequent lecturers, so too were a series of distinguished professors from the University of Chicago's Divinity School, the hotbed of modernist theology, who, then came, who were invited to come out and instruct the LDS teachers. Harris even sent some of their best and brightest students to study at Chicago before becoming instructors at BYU or all the quickly populating institutes. Quote, higher criticism is not to be feared by Latter-day Saints, these instructors were told. These developments, like Lyman's, were not without detractors. One parent wrote the BYU worried that, quote, all the professors in the university believe in the principle of evolution. The complaint was not without merit. The next year, an editorial in the school's newspaper praised Darwin as a man as great in his field as George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were in theirs. Concern continued to rise. Susie Young Gates, who I've already quoted before, ordered Harris to, quote, find a new class of teachers who were real Latter-day Saint men instead of philosophers and theorists. When Harris demurred, Gates shot back that he was, quote, so broad-minded that you had let some of your teachers go too far. Gates had already lost the battle over the Relief Society with Lyman, and now she was losing control of a university named after her own father. What was at stake 
was more than the curriculum of, this, of the church's flagship school, but the ideological possibilities for modern Mormonism. Across the nation, denominations were splintering over questions concerning biblical inerrancy, scriptural truths, and social principles, questions that had been present since the nation's founding, yet were now amplified during an age that called for progress and reform. This was the time of the Scopes monkey trial, remember, the massive clash between fundamentalists and modernists over teaching evolution in public schools. I think it remarkable then that even while some Mormons like Joseph Fielding Smith were soaking in the teachings of William Jennings Bryan, the foremost proponent of this uh, fundamentalist education, BYU's president and professors were drawing inspiration from the University of Chicago, the main point of modernist religious thought. At least for the moment, the modernists in Provo appeared to have the upper hand. Franklin Harris proved to be a skilled administrator who knew how to build consensus, earn trust from leaders, and frame these advances in a way that fit the university's mission. Yet questions remained. Would the LDS tradition go the way of the modernists who sought to transform faith in a way that matched the new evolving era? Or would they follow the path of the fundamentalists who clung to traditional modes of knowledge and unquestionable truth? The 1920s and the first years of the 1930s proved to be the high watermark for modernist reform within the Mormon kingdom. In her first two decades as one of the leading figures in the Relief Society, Amy Brown Lyman had paved the way for integrating the faith's charitable efforts within the larger societal vision for progressive uplift, and Franklin Harris pushed and prodded to make BYU and the faith's overall scholarly mission more in line with intellectual currents than sweeping across the nation's academies. Building on several decades of cultural assimilation, these reformers envisioned a Mormonism unafraid of modernity's central challenges and unreserved in drawing from a wealth of societal resources at their disposal. Yet their iconoclastic attempts at social reform through secular means, if still within a faithful context, turned out to be some of the few forms of the Americanization project that did not stick. Mormons spent much of the early 20th century working desperately to build bridges that connected them to their surrounding culture. But some bridges proved too dangerous, avenues on which too much cultural influence traveled, commerce that might import too much heterodoxy and export too much divinity. Mormonism was, most readily confessed, destined to be an American faith, but leaders insisted it could not be too American, or more accurately, at least not a particular type of American, lest it lose a singularity that proved its necessity. As a result of the faith, as a result, the faith of Lyman and Harris turned out to be the road less traveled and was to give away to that of another, one who entered the scene unexpectedly in 1933, yet whose impact was immediate and whose relentless and domineering efforts came to shape the face of the modern church. J. Reuben Clark was a force to be reckoned with. Known as Rube to his close family and friends and known for his round face and bow ties to everyone else, Clark was one of the eldest of 10 children born in the rural town of Grantsville, Utah in 1871. His mother, Mary Louisa, was the daughter of one of the territory's most successful businessmen and prominent bishops, a heredity that assured necessary connections to the faith's elites throughout his career. But Clark also inherited from his father, Joshua, a devotion to the Republican Party. 
These twin pillars of pioneer faith and political allegiance shaped the rest of Clark's life. After exhausting the education possibilities in Utah, he moved east and rapidly climbed the ladder to political and legal success. He received a law degree from Columbia and was immediately appointed assistant solicitor in the nation's capital in 1906, and then promoted to, solicit to solicitor four years later when he became President Taft's point man in dealing with Mexico. Clark left federal office in 1913 with the democratic wave that swept the nation, but quickly found success with law practices in both DC and New York. But where his legal career flourished, his religious commitments floundered. He didn't pay tithing, attend the temple, or even regularly participate in church activities for nearly two decades, and even privately ruminated that Joseph Smith's revelations might be the products of a wild imagination uh, egged on by an enthusiastic culture. It wasn't until his persistent and persuasive wife, Lute, convinced him to return to Utah in 1923 and rededicate himself to the church that he dramatically changed course, consciously choosing loyalty to the LDS institution and orthodoxy to its traditional doctrines. He would forever be skeptical toward those who made a different conclusion. And though he had never held a substantial ecclesiastical office, Heber J. Grant shocked everyone a decade later when he chose Clark to be a counselor in the First Presidency. When he was read into the church's hierarchy and practices, Clark, who had spent three decades as a partisan Republican skeptical of modernist intellectuals, he was shocked by how many inroads progressive reformers like Lyman and Harris had made. Clark deeply distrusted those who relied on federal assistance, as well as those who prioritized academic thinking. In his first address at General Conference in 1933, he denounced the New Deal for enabling idleness, claiming that America had to return to the old-time virtues of industry, thrift, honesty, and self-reliance. The world was falling apart not due to finance, he declared, but because it had lost its spiritual core. That same month, Clark warned Grant that there is a secular intelligentsia who threatened to undermine church teachings. Addressing both these issues would be Clark's focus for the next decade. His first and immediate concern was with the federal government's intervention into the ongoing Great Depression. Clark was shocked that at the same conference where he decried the New Deal, he heard several other leaders, including A.B. Baum Lyman, praise the program. At a monumental leadership gathering that summer, Clark asked Relief Society and priesthood leaders for details concerning government relief distribution in the state. The figures, the figures confirmed his worst fears. Utah was among the nation's leading states when it came to using federal funds. When he pressed whether the people were, who were receiving these funds were undeserving in their requests, the presiding bishop, Sylvester Q. Cannon, emphasized that 95% of those who requested help sincerely needed it. Cannon was, or sorry, Clark was unconvinced. He demanded they create a church system that could wean all saints off of government assistance. One official, perplexed by the demand, sketched his response across the top of Clark's report. Quote, if the church were to undertake uh, to care of the care of this amount, it would bankrupt us. One of Clark's, one, 
Clark's ideals and Utah's realities were distinct enough that they could never fully meet. But he reflected a sentiment found throughout the nation among conservative religious figures, as seen in this political cartoon, who worried that increased government involvement was corrupting the American spirit. The first Red Scare, as some historians have put it, found fundamentalists, ter found fundamentalists terrified that too much government control in the form of the New Deal was merely the first step toward godless socialism. While Clark lacked the apocalyptic enthusiasm of these evangelicals, his partisan training was enough to make him sympathetic with their cause. Significantly, Clark's hatred for FDR was shared by Grant, a previously frustrated Democrat who broke with the party over prohibition and the New Deal. In fact, one of Grant's close friends said that you couldn't even mention FDR's name without the prophet's face turning beet red. And once Anthony Ivins, the only FDR supporter in the First Presidency, passed away in 1934, Grant and Clark put the New Deal on blast, I think as the kids say. They changed the editorial leadership at the Deseret News so that the paper would dedicate more tax on the Democrats, publicly endorsed FDR's opponent in each of the next three elections, and introduced the, social, the church security program, later renamed Church Welfare Plan, to wean people off of the government. Let's see. And though the long-term legacies of these initiatives would be immense, at the time, they fell short. Over the next decade, Utah continued to use the 12th most resources per capita in the nation. The federal government spent 10 times the value of the churchwide welfare uh, plan resources within the state, and Utah continued to vote for FDR by overwhelming margins. But in their public opposition to the New Deal, church leaders cultivated a new and persistent message that would form the heart of modern day Mormon conservatism the importance of self-reliance, skepticism toward the federal government, and the primacy of individual liberty. Though they praised the church's welfare plan for saving the Utah region, they ignored the fact that it was only federal intervention that kept many saints from going hungry, and instead created a myth that has lasted until today that Clark's system saved the saints. While it wasn't until the 1950s that leaders like Ezra Taft Benson were able to take advantage of a new cultural climate and build on this foundation to encourage a majority of lay members to make the political shift, this foundation was laid with Clark's clash with Amy Brown Lyman in the 1930s. And not only did Lyman's vision of the church working lockstep with the government dissipate, but so did for her agenda for an activist relief society. Clark now urged society leaders to reassess their goals and activities so that their primary objectives would be the quote, promotion of faith and testimony and to leave quote, social, cultural and educational efforts alone. The relief society he announced in general conference was to be quote, the handmaid to the priesthood not a colleague with the government. Lyman, undeterred, still pressed forward. Quote, I would like to advocate the idea of women becoming more interested in politics and government, she publicly proclaimed, not less. Yet when her husband was caught in an affair in 1943 and Clark saw to it that he was publicly excommunicated, all the ground that Lyman worked so hard to claim disappeared and she tendered her resignation as Relief Society president. 
Amy Brown Lyman proved to be the climax of a particular strain of Mormon women's activism, a vibrant movement as comfortable drawing from the broader cultural strains and the federal government as it was working within the LDS structure, a movement that simultaneously challenged the status quo with uh, and carved their own autonomous space while rarely drawing intense opposition from the institution itself. Yet after Lyman, the Relief Society, previously a quasi-autonomous machine dedicated to social, societal reform, would be consumed into a correlated fabric that prioritized homogeneity over individuality. Lyman was not the last Mormon woman to push for gendered empowerment, social change, and federal cooperation, of course. But those who followed her, both in time and spirit, operated within more confined ecclesiastical spaces. Many were cast as competing voices and therefore threats to the establishment. Feminist reform then was thereafter scandalized as external to faithful discourse. Women's activism as a result came to exist on a much more dangerous ground. Now to move back to Clark's other target, BYU. Quote, I have come to deplore the fact that some of our literati, as I called him, as I call them, Grant once worked to, or Clark once wrote to Grant, do not spend more time on the gospel as revealed and less on the pagan philosophy of ancient times and the near pagan philosophy of modern times. That's my Clark voice in case you didn't pick that up. These Mormon intellectuals, Clark believed, had failed to make the same pledge of loyalty that he had, which left Clark questioning their motives. And now under the direction of Clark, Heber J. Grant reversed his previous position of benign neglect toward BYU and instead chastised them for failing to prioritize sacred truths. Teachers were to follow the same counsel as missionaries who were sent out into the world, quote, spread revealed truth and reject worldly wisdom, as we do not care what other people believe and what their teachers are. The message of creeping retrenchment was clear. Clark and Grant had reason to worry that these new philosophies were influencing the faith's younger generation. A study performed in 1935, which surveyed nearly 1,200 of the 1,700 BYU students, provided a remarkable snapshot of a modern generation of saints far removed from, from pioneer principles. Around a quarter of the student body did not believe that modern prophets received revelation, that temple work was of benefit to the dead, were in full sympathy with church rituals, or desired a temple marriage, and only 38% believed there was a literal devil. When it came to the most divisive scientific disputes of the day, a surprising 64% of students believed that man's creation involved biological evolution, a number that would have made Joseph Fielding Smith gasp. More ominously, these doctrinal issues paled in comparison to the budding social transformation. Nearly half the students did not consider drinking alcohol morally wrong. 90% were fine with some form of birth control, and only a half to two-thirds of students attended church every week, paid tithing, kept the word of wisdom, or engaged in daily prayers. In summary, a whopping 72% of students confess that their re religiosity declined during their studies. 
Though Clark and Grant did not have access to these figures, they could sense the cultural transition going on. Conservative students and concerned parents petitioned authorities to step in. And then there were the new professors who had trained either at Chicago or other institutions, as well as learned from Chicago scholars at Aspen Grove. One of the Chicago school students, Heber Snell, delivered an address at the 1937 LDS Teachers Conference that urged them to judge scriptural texts not by, quote, mere tradition, but rather through, quote, internal evidence of the book themselves and by external evidence as exist, lessons drawn from the new higher criticism scholarship. When he heard of this address, Joseph Fielding Smith dashed off a letter to Harris proclaiming that, quote, if the views of these men become dominant in the church, then we, then we may just as well close up shop and say to the world that Mormonism is a failure. It was one too overstatement. To Clark, these ideas were not just dangerous due to their heretical level, but also because they weakened the authority of priesthood leaders. Fundamentalism, as recent scholars have emphasized and as seen in this political cartoon from the period, was as much about power, who gets to make decisions, as it was about doctrine. The First Presidency now knew that they had to bring BYU and its renegade teachers under their thumb. Later that year, Grant met with Harris and informed him that, quote, we have reached a point where we must be perfectly clear that all those who are engaged in teaching in the university shall be sound on the fundamental questions which deal with church scholarship. That word fundamental coming up again. He instructed Harris to do a, quote, very strict examination of all teachers to see just where they stand. The teachers, by the way, called this the Inquisition. They also were one for overstatement. The next summer in 1938, at the annual gathering at Aspen Grove, the same Edenic setting where modernist teachings had previously spread, J. Reuben Clark came and addressed LDS instructors on a rainy morn morning and pointed them on a new charted course. He denounced teachers who embraced, uh, quote, the most modern view of scholarship and, quote, dosed it upon us without any thought as to whether we read it, needed it or not. These, quote, newfangled ideas, and I do need to note, he, were, he used the term fangled ideas, uh, often clash with divine truths. And church leaders, no matter how backward they appear, are actually, quote, far out in the lead in terms of doctrine. No teacher who does not have a real testimony of the church and the gospel as revealed to and believed by Latter-day Saints, the fundamentals of the gospels, he continued, has any place in the church education system. If there be any such, and I hope and pray there are none, they should at once resign. Clark's accusations on modernism poured down like the raindrops on their cabin they were sitting in. In short, Clark proclaimed that there were, quote, essential fundamentals underlying our church school education that could never be questioned, notably biblical inerrancy, the Book of Mormon's historicity, and Joseph Smith's prophetic calling. Clark's speech was immediately published in the Deseret News as, quote, an official pronouncement of the First Presidency. And Joseph Fielding Smith, when he read it, enthusiastically wrote Clark to say that he had, quote, been hoping and praying for a long time that something like this would happen. Now, here's another image just to, uh, uh, from the fundamentalist Mormonism debates, just because they're great. Now, fundamentals 
The word frequently used by Clark, Smith, and Grant is a key term for this discussion. It was the same phrase invoked by those during the period who sought nothing less than to defend Christianity against the onslaught of the modern academy. In 1910, for instance, the Presbyterian General Assembly presented their five fundamentals for evangelical faith. Now, Mormons, with the lead of Clark, declared their own. Over the next few decades, fundamentalists gave up hope in reforming modernist universities. See this uh, political cartoon with the, the octopus of modernism and its, and its arms reaching out and embracing all the current institutions, instead creating their own universities like Biola, Fuller Seminary, and Bob Jones University. Simultaneously, Mormons chose not to create a new school, but instead perform a makeover at the one already in operation. Therefore, other than remaining in the uh, modernist trajectory that Franklin Harris envisioned, where faith and modern scholarship could work in tandem, Clark made sure that BYU would realign with the fundamentalist pioneers who circled the wagon around traditional principles. Harris, who was present that misty morning in Aspen Grove, finally saw the writing on the wall. The next year, the church rearranged their educational system in order to place BYU under close control of the Quorum of the Twelve, resulting in substantial curriculum changes. Courses like Psychology of Religion were replaced by restored gospel as a way of life, and problems of religious and ethical life were replaced with the Book of Mormon. Harris, fighting a losing battle, eventually left BYU to become the president of the Utah State Agricultural College, renamed Utah State University. Among the 142 teachers present at Clark's address was Sterling McMurrin, a young institute teacher just about to begin a PhD program in philosophy at UCLA. After Clark finished charting the new course, McMurrin reported that the teachers, quote, divided ourselves up into liberal and conservative camps and discussed the new charge at their divided campfires late into the night. McMurrin, of course, joined the liberals and never looked back. Those separate campfires then represented the alternate camps of Mormon thought that stemmed from 1938. While Clark's address became and remains the standard for church education, the, there immediately came another tradition of modernist thinking, thinkers like McMurrin, quickly joined by intellectuals who tried to remain inside the church like Juanita Brooks and those who didn't like Dale Morgan and immediately after Von Brody. But their work, just like the work of Amy Brown Lyman, would now have to take place outside of official church channels as their form of cultural assimilation no longer aligned with that of church leaders. There, these seeds of separation later flowered in the discourse that we now know as alternative voices. I chose, I chose tonight's examples because they, and I'm, in, I'm concluding, I promise. I chose tonight's examples because they represented just two forms of Americanization that do not typically fit our traditional narrative of, of Mormon assimilation. One that seemed predetermined toward a libertarian, patriarchal, fundamentalist, and exceptionalist faith. I could have chose other examples too. For example, I could have spoken about the church's embrace of the color line and segregation over anti-racist protests as a type of assimilation they chose was assimilation into white space, leaving behind the handful of black saints still trying to carve out their own space. 
I've recently been struck by a series of, uh, of entries in the wonderful Century of Black Mormons website, where remarkable Black converts joined the church in Eastern communities during the first decade of the 20th century, only be shut out through the formalization of new racial policies. But these alternate Alternative visions gave way to a new corporate correlated and streamlined church, one posed to become a national power and global presence, yes, but also one designed to curtail elements that failed to align with the centralized vision of leaders like J. Reuben Clark. Just as Clark succeeded in reasserting doctrinal orthodoxy and abating the modernist creep at their flagship university, so too would he and other leaders establish a patriarchal norm that both matched America's post-war nuclear family, but also fit a pattern of social order. So what does that mean for us today? First and foremost, learning the precarious nature of the past should remind us of the malleable nature of the present. The modern church is the result of both deliberate choices as well as unexpected consequences, and the future is just as unsettled as the periods that came before it. But this tale also provides lessons concerning the persistent connections to American culture, that even as Mormonism becomes increasingly globalized, its history and context remains remarkably tethered to the tensions at the heart of the American experiment. Most importantly, the persistence of cultural clashes, shifts, and evolutions. Just as America remains decidedly pluralistic and diverse, so too does its most original homeborn religion. Again, there is no theological march toward a predetermined destiny, a fruition of a particular trajectory that was foreordained at the moment of its creation. Instead, Mormonism is made and remade with every generation, receiving a legacy filled with paradoxes and promises, a heritage with layers of divergent meanings that may have been introduced in the past, in a past age, but not realized until a present one. So while we incurrently while we currently inhabit the church that J. Reuben Clark built, we also inherit the modernist spirit of forgotten pioneers like Amy Brown Lyman and Franklin Harris, who embodied a vision that can offer renewed hope for a day like today. For this is, as I open the paper with, as much Juanita Brooks's church as anyone else's. That's all I got. Ben, thank you. What a really wonderful and provocative uh, uh, paper and, and history tonight for our Fireside series. We are going to open this up to uh, questions. And if anybody wants to submit uh, questions via the Q&A function on the bottom of the seminar screen there, uh, we are uh, definitely open to, uh, to getting more of those. We've got a few in already. Uh, but I just want to emphasize, Ben, just how, how important it is uh, to, to, to articulate, as you have done for us, the uh, diversity of early 20th century Mormonism, the role of the fundamentalist modernist split in the church, and especially, I think, to think of fundamentalism as an assimilation tactic that Latter-day Saints are using rather than necessarily the default uh, that, that the church always was in, in some way. So I think these are really great ways of, of getting us started. We've got a number of questions that are coming in. Some of them are historical and some of them are uh, reflecting on the contemporary issues that the church is facing and some of the long tail uh, of, of the themes that you've discussed up until today. Um, one of the questions is uh, just to, to maybe talk a little bit more about the Richard R. Lyman excommunication that you mentioned um, and what some of the other effects of that excommunication were, certainly on, on Amy Lyman, but 
but on uh, any others that you might want to reflect on. Yeah, so um, it's it's a question I always dread, or this is my first time presenting on this topic. So it's a question I've dreaded coming in answering the, the Richard Lyman issue because I'm still trying to wrap my mind around what happened. The the basics is uh, Richard Lyman is assigned and uh, Richard Lyman is, is Amy Brown Lyman's uh, husband. He's uh, ordained an apostle in 1919. Both his father and his grandfather were apostles. Um, and in 1921, just a few years into his apostleship, one of the jobs he's given is to counsel people who were caught in post-Second Manifesto polygamist uh, uh, relationships. And um, so it seems from the very start, he's, he's struggling with trying to reconcile issues of polygamy, which is in his family legacy and the new church's uh, embrace of monogamy. And in the course of these discussions, he comes upon a new woman who I'm really sorry I'm forgetting her name, who he is assigned to uh, counsel. And he and this woman um, start a what's a friendship at first and eventually flowers into an affair. Uh, there's a debate over whether they saw it as a polygamous uh, union or whether it was just a straightforward affair. Regardless, they're captured uh, in the act uh, J. Reuben Clark organizes some apostles to team up with some policemen to barge into apartment and capture them. And then there's a very public uh, uh, trial. Um, Richard Lyman had clashed with J. Reuben Clark for, for a while. So even though there was, I mean, it wasn't like J. Reuben Clark sent in this woman as a, as, you know, a, a decoy to capture him. Um, it did end up working in his favor for what, for Clark's agenda. Um, it also gives me a chance to bring up this issue of we talk about this Mormon fundamentalism during this time. Uh, what strikes me in doing this research and how Lyman kind of ties into the story too, is this birth of Mormon fundamentalism in the 1920s and 1930s is also taking place at the very same time that Mormon fundamentalism is being born, meaning the polygamous. Um, in fact, it's 1935 that the fundamentalist, uh, uh, first fundamentalist newspaper appears and there's uh, real worry among church leaders of what are we going to do with this crop of fundamentalists, not just because it's going to bring up legal issues and bad PR, but a lot of church leaders are worried that these fundamentalists are kind of striking at a core of our doctrine, right? They're the ones that are fulfilling Joseph's mission and what do we do? So I would, I'm still formulating my, my argument here, but I really think that one of the reasons why Clark and others are so adamant on creating this Mormon fundamentalist idea on the first vision and Book of Mormon historicity and other things is so that they can claim some fundamentals while there are other groups who are also claiming fundamentals, right? These, these are the true fundamentals. So I think there's this anxiety that it's not a coincidence that the charted course and this new vision trajectory of Mormon thought is happening in the same years that they're dealing with the, the growing fundamentalist movement. A couple of questions here. Uh, I'm going to roll a few of these together about um, the role of women in the contemporary church and in Utah culture in um, in uh, uh, higher education. So uh, I'm not familiar with this. The I Was a Stranger initiative, high profile women like Sharon Eubank, um, uh, new CES uh, hire, hires uh, that are that are female scholars. Uh, and also female university presidents in Utah um, uh, that are that are here right now. Uh, what's the kind of connection do you see between those uh, uh, the contemporary reforms around gender equity and the earlier period? 
Yeah, so it's a great question. And I will very quickly, I saw a few comments going up about writing an Amy Brown Lyman biography. I'm sure everyone here knows, but Dave Hall's biography of Amy Brown Lyman, uh, Faded uh, Legacy, is a phenomenal read. One of the best biographies we have in the field. So please go out and, and read that. I, I could not recommend that uh, with more praise. Your question of connections to modern day education reform. Um, if anything, I went into this project probably a bit ignorant. I mean, I, my world is the 19th century and the early 19th century of that. And I go into the 20th century and studying Mormon pedagogical reform efforts in the 19 teens and 1920s that I never thought I would be digging into, but they're fascinating, believe me. One of the things that strike me about that is how many of the you know great advances that we're seeing today and the, the benchmarks that we're facing today were also reached in a lot of degrees back then. Um, so what I'm trying to say is like this Mormon pedagogical reform with both including women leaders and addressing these, you know, broader educational efforts. Um, the history is cyclical. It's not, you know, this march toward we're having all these new milestones today that they couldn't have fathomed a century ago. In fact, there are some things today that, you know, if we were to bring up someone from the 1920s, they're like, oh, you're just celebrating that now? I promise we accomplished that, you know, back then. In some ways, I think, you know, Book of Mormon or BYU religious curriculum today is much more retrenched than it was in the 1920s. Um, and so gender, of course, is a bit different. There weren't a lot of women as presidents of, of schools back then. Maybe there were more in, in teaching positions. But I guess my general response would be that we see a, a cyclical nature to these advances and retrenchments rather than a, you know, the theme of my night, a predetermined march toward modernity. So what were some of the um, models for BYU in the 20s and 30s? Uh, contemporary people, you know, looked at BYU as a peer institution to Notre Dame, perhaps, or the, the Harvard of the West. I guess people forget there are other places West that are in the West also. Uh, but um, what, are, what are the models that, uh, that they were looking at? Was it the fundamentalist universities or were there uh, others? So you see a distinction. I mean, it really was the University of Chicago for a decade. I mean, that, that it's hard to overstate this, this informal, formal connection that BYU had with University of Chicago, inviting scholars out from the school every year, including the dean of, uh, of University of Chicago Divinity School uh, to come speak at their Aspen Grove, sending a dozen students out to Chicago to receive their PhD, uh, PhDs on the church's dime to then return back and teach either at BYU and the various other institutions. But there are a number of schools. Uh, uh, Tom Simpson's wonderful book, American Universities and the Rise of Modern Mormonism charts um, that there's really this shift that they're looking at Stanford, Harvard, Chicago as the models that they wanna follow. And then when J. Reuben Clark and the others do these reforms, they're suddenly looking at Biola and uh, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary and uh, these the schools that take a much more fundamentalist look. And in some cases, you know, copying them. And, and we see this like at the leadership position too, where Joseph Fielding Smith, when he's giving his presentation, suddenly he's drawing a lot of his ideas from Seventh-day Adventist ministers. Um, so you really see the shift on who we see as the models that church leaders and BYU is trying to emulate. And there is a, a critical juncture that takes place in the late 1930s. So a uh, one more BYU question here for us. Uh, you mentioned already that uh, the BYU Religious Education uh, Department today uh, is perhaps more retrenched, uh, more conservative, more fun, has more, some fundamentalist streaks relative to, to the 1920s. 
But there are other places on BYU's campus where the psychology of religion and philosophy of religion and, of course, evolution are being taught. Can you just tell a little bit of the story of, if it's not through religion, how those other departments uh, liberalize over time? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I will say from the outset, I don't have a full picture of that yet, right? I mean, I'm, I'm slowly working my way through the, the 20th century. And uh, so far, anything that actually happens after 1950 doesn't exist to me. Uh, no, um, but I think in general, you see the Department of Religion always receives far more attention from the BYU Board of Trustees and church leaders than any of the other departments, right? The BYU religion is what's teaching the core religion courses to all this, you know, the thousands of students. So we are going to be deeply involved in their activities. And the other departments, you know, just have moments of, of crisis or, or moments of issues. But in general, they're just kind of given, you know, broad strokes. Part of that is due to, you know, maintaining accreditation which is a major issue in the late 20th century when the accrediting bodies at BYU and other religious schools are, are working with have demands that, you know, meeting modern education standards that they have to follow. Um, and I think this has helped, especially in, in recent decades when, you know, the academic job market uh, crashes um, and all these very brilliant uh, Mormon students are going to great universities, learning great things. And they come back to BYU, whereas previously they might not have. Um, I will remark that in tracing Mormonism in the early 20th century, I'm amazed at how many brilliant and influential Mormon academics are at universities across the nation. I just assumed that all Mormon professors were at BYU. No, we had professors at Harvard. We had professors at University of North Carolina. We had professors at all these great institutions. Um, and then eventually we kind of see this, this migration back to BYU. So I, I think that's part of the story, but I think the bigger story I'm excited to find out. Uh, a couple, uh, a couple other <laughs> could questions I, not on BYU. Oh, sorry, could I ahead, break, If I could just break in with a question that I, maybe a follow-up. Uh, it's kind of a where are we now question. Um, it's intriguing. It's been pointed out that 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 Clark's address at, at the Aspen Grove is still used, is still read and imposed on institute teachers in the CES program. Um, but also that the that it's now almost a hundred years of time where uh, the, the the Ben, what you're talking about as a shift to fundamentalism. Um, a, a certain kind of fundamentalism has been the message that we now have multiple generations who have heard that message. Um, so if the where are we now is if Clark gave his address today at BYU or at Aspen Grove, would that strike us as uh, revolutionary, as a change or as a call to order? Um, and, and similarly, if the general membership were to hear this that the discussion that only several hundred of us have heard tonight, um, wouldn't the response be, well, Clark had it right. I mean, we, we now have a century of, of his uh, position being the one that is taught. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't we all hear it today as he had it right all along? That yeah, it, there are definitely people who do that. And, and, I, and I'll say that like people who teach religion both at BYU and across the nation that are Mormon are split on this issue still today. There's some who, you know, still champion uh, 
the charted course as you know this standard and, and someone made the comment that that's true that new institute teachers are still assigned the chartered course i mean it's still i wouldn't they wouldn't see it as radical if clark were to give the address today they would see it as a as a reaffirmation of what the current church system is um I would love to see a further engagement. I think there's an important article for cultural reasons that still needs to be written on the legacy of the charted course, um, placing it in the, this context that I briefly mentioned today and kind of looking at how it's evolved over the years. And I've, I've heard many make the argument and persuasively I think that uh, church education is, is going to not be able to get over a number of roadblocks that are currently in place until they're able to get past the charted course. Like that's the boulder in the middle of the path that you can't get by. Uh, I, I have some friends in the church education system who said that a few years, Paul Johnson, who was the commissioner of education back then, and I guess has been reappointed recently, um, he gave an address that was meant to replace the charted course that was supposed to, you know, reflect a new modern openness. Um, and then I've heard that it hasn't really stuck. Uh, so I think there's a history there that I'd, I'd love to look into. So where we are now, we're still very much in Aspen Grove in 1938, um, with, with that being the standard for church education. Ben, this, this raises uh, some of the themes of some of the questions that we're getting that I want you to kind of reflect on a little bit. The way that you've told the story is shaped around, as we, as we all do, around a few personalities as having a large impact, like Clark, to be able to sort of shift the, the way that the church itself uh, has run. And you can point to the Johnson example as uh, uh, the failure of some personalities to, uh, to potentially shift the church today, to moderate it on some, in some respects. And just in the last few weeks, we've seen um, serious pushback from conservative members of the church on pretty basic things like affirming who won an election, right? Uh, so, so we seem to be in you know, uh, an era where many members of the church and maybe some of the institutions of the church are really kind of battling up against uh, some of the, the personalities or some of the leadership of the church that is pushing in a more moderating direction. And, you know, again, to reiterate, the story that you told is one where the church was divided against itself between BYU and, and so, so we know that, that, that those internal tensions exist. But what are the prospects of an individual or uh, being, being the driving force behind change today or what other factors would have to come into place to see a kind of shift way towards the fundamentalism that has reigned uh, in the church? It's a good question. And I, and I will say at the outset that historians are horrible prophets, um, but I think it can be done because we've seen bigger shifts in the past. So whenever I hear people say that, you know, you can't make a major change in the church because it's so embedded, um, those people haven't seen the church in 1889 compared to what it was in 1910, right? I mean, we've had bigger shifts on nearly every issue in the past than you know, some of these shifts would be. Um, I will say it's harder because the church is so correlated now, right? That the, uh, the, the big pride that the same lesson that you read in Provo, Utah is the same one that you'd read in, in Taiwan. Um, so I think getting over that correlation, uh, that's one thing that's really sticking out to me on my research in the 1950s and 60s is how much correlation changed the project, prospect of reform in the church that now um, leaders in the church not only spend an, an increasing number of years in leadership because of uh, medical advances that allow people to lead the church until a much older age, 
Um, but that these people who have led the church for 50 years have led a church that has always been correlated, right? And I think we overlook the fact that leading a church for 40 years before you become prophet or become before you become in the first frenzy and leading a correlated church, it is embedded in you to recognize how hard change is. Right? I mean, just look at Thomas S. Monson, who I guess might have uh, other issues might have uh, prevented it, but very hesitant to make any changes because I mean, he wanted the church in 1950s you know, still existing in, in the, in the aughts. Um, whereas, you know, Russell M. Nelson in the Quorum of the Twelve for a, a lot shorter time, but still is maintaining a, a certain type of image of the church, even while, you know, modernizing and streamlining uh, other issues. So I think there can be individuals that can change. Uh, the problem is because of this correlation dynamic, um, those who push for change and reform are automatically cast as alternate voices. And being an alternative voices gives you far less cachet than being an institutional voice. And so I think that dynamic is, is, is the big boulder in the way. If there's pause here, I'd like to just um, appreciate your comment, Ben, about other threads, um, race being one of them. Um, I, uh, there's also a comment that uh, uh, pacifism or, or uh, a, a tendency toward war is, uh, is a different thread of a change in the same uh, time frame and involving some of the same people. And I, I uh, I guess I'm just saying that as a, as appreciation. I know you don't have time to to delve yeah, no, in. No, I and as you, I appreciate as you know that. Today. Those are both uh, great themes. I I urge everyone to go on the Century of Black Mormons, which should be bookmarked on everyone's uh, browser because it's such a great and important project that brings up these lives that typically get forgotten on the peace and and nonviolence issue. Um, Patrick Mason published an article uh, a few years ago in Journal of Mormon History that was his uh, a presidential address for MHA um, on the peace building legacy of Mormonism that has kind of been forgotten. That's another example of you know a road not taken. And yeah, I think there's all these streams that, 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 we, that we overlook that uh, recreating, I think, is one of the most, or restoring is one of the most uh, important things that historians can do. Ben, let me roll in uh, uh, about three questions here um, and make a comment to preface one of them. I remember reading Thomas O'Day's um, 1950s sociology of Mormonism and came up Upon a really quite striking note that uh, the church educational system, the institutes of religion around the country were the hotbeds of Mormon liberalism and modernism. And thinking, thinking what happened over, the, over those times. So to what extent does um, the, the CES or the institutes of religion uh, become a kind of either counterforce or why is it uh, have a slower response relative to BYU uh, during this period? Because we do get, of course, Lowell Binion and other uh, uh, you know, uh, modernists who, who end up in that system. Um, and rolling that in as a kind of a, another um, a counter uh, force that you, that you mentioned a little bit is uh, the other fundamentalist uh, movements in, in the church that are embracing polygamy. Um, what, uh, what uh, sorry, let me see if I can just read this question here. How did Clark address the, uh, the doubling down on fundamentals at BYU and elsewhere in the church 
affect the development of Mormon fundamentalism? So in what way does his embrace of fundamentalism affect fundamentalism? So two, two questions yeah. there to, in two different um, directions. So first institutes, um, I think it matters that they're not in Provo, right? The, the fact that, that the church has a deep control over BYU. And if you're out at, you know, Stanford or, or Harvard, you have a bit more uh, liberty. You don't have as much uh, uh, oversight. I think that that matters. I think it also matters that um, curriculum in the institutes is still developing until it's not until after correlation that we have these correlated, you know, classes that you take at institute. So I think they have a bit more broad range. We're at BYU, you know, especially with Ernest Wilkinson, you have set courses that you're supposed to teach. Um, on the fundamentalist question, the first thing J. Reuben Clark does when he joins the First Presidency is write what is called the Third Manifesto. Um, you know, the first manifesto, 1890, Woodruff's second manifesto, 1904, Joseph F. Smith, where he basically says we really mean it this time. And then 1933, June, I, I believe, J. Reuben Clark writes the third manifesto, which basically says anyone who's still entering into or living post-second manifesto polygamous unions needs to be both excommunicated from the church and we're going to support a uh, 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 legal repercussions, right? And, the, and then J. Reuben Clark and Heber J. Grant work with state officials to round up polygamists in the state, right? It's, first of all, it's one way for the church to prove their loyalty, right? Where we're going to help you round up the polygamists rather than hide them in the past. And second is the way that they saw these fundamentalists as, as a threat to their legacy. Um, but as we see, as historians see, whenever they look at a group of, you know, these, these small grown religions, what some might call, you know, maliciously as cults, um, whenever you have these small religions that, that receive all these external pressure, which is what J. Reuben Clark and the state authorities are doing, you see them percolate and grow bigger and become more retrenched. So if anything, J. Reuben Clark creates modern fundamentalism because his opposition is what gives them the air to, to grow. Uh, then going a different direction from uh, CES goes one direction with respect to education, but with respect to Relief Society and Amy Lyman, um, it's what sort of what happens next. Is is her resignation or just a sharp end to the to the uh, social welfare uh, efforts, or or is there a pushback or a, a longer a longer time? Um, there you go. Uh, that's no, it's, question. it's a fair question. Any good historian will tell you that there's never you know a concrete break from one era to another. There's you know lasting legacies that fall. I mean, Bell Spafford, who becomes president of the society and stays president for several decades, becomes one of the most powerful people. But uh, and they still do, you know, some reform efforts. We know about the church, you know, welfare or efforts of, of, of raising goods and br bringing out to people in need. And that's more. Um, and that continues. But there is a definite shift in their vision. I mean, you can even point to 1940 when J. Reuben Clark gathers the Relief Society presidency together uh, in, the, in the church administration building and basically says, this is your new vision statement for the Relief Society. This is your change. And that remains the, the vision statement all the way till today, that your focus is on building testimony, promoting home domestic harmony, um, and that all these temporal things are going to be governed by the priesthood if overseen at all. 
So there is going to be continuing those social outreach and, and uh, Relief Society leaders wanting to do this vision. I mean, we see different Relief Society presidencies who have different goals. Uh, as you know, all the wonderful historians of, of Relief Society will tell you, the Relief Society presidency of the 1990s was, you know, had a very different uh, approach than the Relief Society presidency of the 1980s. But they're all operating within new, uh, new structures. Right, they whatever they do has to fit within the parameters of their new uh, of, of the society's goals, which definitely did have a, have a major change in 1940, and then it's carried on with the plum with presence after uh, Amy Brown Lyman. And we've uh, kept you a, a pretty long time here, so this may be our last question. Maybe one more if Chris has got has got <laughs> another one too. And there are a lot of fantastic questions in the chat that we are not going to be able to get to. But I wonder if you might um, reflect on a few figures that you didn't mention that are relatively well known in this period um, and the roles that they played in uh, the modernist fundamentalist shift, uh, including B.H. Roberts um, and the reaction perhaps against his, uh, his uh, crisis around the Book of Mormon or questioning around the Book of Mormon. Um, and maybe the Talmadge, uh, the Talmadge or, or the Widstows or others um, that, that you might want to mention. You don't need to do all of those, but, but any reflections on those characters here? I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, Roberts is a person I cut out from this paper that I was originally going to talk about because uh, I see his two intellectual projects in the 1920s, uh, his approaches to the Book of Mormon and his uh, The Truth, the Way, the Life manuscripts um, as in some ways, the acme of this modernist uh, intellectual reform. Um, up until that point, B.H. Roberts is the most prolific writer and publisher in, in Mormondom, right? Starting in 1887, he is like the press is just frequently filled with his words. And then his final two major works go unpublished. Uh, his approach to the Book of Mormon, which I won't get into right now, uh, and the truth, the way, and the life. Um, I don't think it's a matter of him like losing the testimony of the church. It seems pretty clear to me that he retains the testimony, but he, he argues that our understanding of a testimony, how we get to a testimony has to change. He argues quite directly with church leaders that in order to salvage our, you know, growing generation, we have to be able to present our ideas in ways that accord with modern intellectual understanding. Right, so we can defend the Book of Mormon, but we have to defend the Book of Mormon using modern ways of knowing, um, or we have to defend the Mormon sense of being and the truth, the way, and the life while using modern theological uh, arguments. Um, both of those arguments go uh, unanswered in, in church leadership, and and B. H. Roberts dies quite bitter over that. Um, and I will argue very quickly, um, in 1831, when the final death blow to B.H. Uh, Roberts's Truth, the Way, the Life manuscript, and it goes unpublished, I really think that, that debate with Joseph Fielding Smith that took place in the Quorum of the Twelve, I really think that debate shifted Heber J. Grant, where up until that point, he had been, using the term I said in the paper, having kind of a benign neglect approach to BYU and other you know, Mormon intellectuals. They know what they're talking about. I'm going to leave them alone. Um, I think the fight between B.H. Roberts and Joseph Fielding Smith changes Heber J. Grant's mind because suddenly Heber J. Grant becomes a convert to Joseph Fielding Smith. He tells Joseph Fielding Smith after the debate, you are the great 
philosopher of Mormonism. And then that kind of, you know, lays the foundation for when J. Reuben Clark comes in that, that Heber J. Grant takes a very different approach. Um, Talmadge and Widso, very quickly, um, what I find remarkable is they remain so adamant about presenting this, you know, modernist view of approaching theology and history and scripture up until about 1831, or sorry, 1931. I still remain in the 19th century. 1931, and then after the B.H. Roberts debate, and especially after J. Reuben Clark enters, they become a lot more muted in public debate. I think they recognize that uh, the ground had shifted beneath their feet, and they become much more subtle and much less likely to jump into public discussions. And you see the number of their works greatly uh, decrease after that point. Yeah, if we're, if we're wrapping, I want to um, ask the question, where does this go? Where do we get more? Um, for, for the audience here, this, this session tonight has been recorded and will be posted and available. Um, you could be, find that when, once it's posted through the dialoguejournal.com website and, and it will show up on YouTube uh, soon. But, but let me put that back to you, Ben. Where, where is this work going to show up? Where do we learn more? Where do we get, where do we get this? The pages of dialogue. How's that for a good answer? Um, there's actually a mountain of wonderful work on, on, on this history. Not as much as you get in the 19th century, but the 20th century has some wonderful material. Uh, as I'm, I'm currently working on a book project that, that traces Mormonism in American culture from the founding to the present. Um, and I'm just blown away at the quality of scholarship, even if it's not as voluminous as it should. Um, and as I get into the 1960s and 1970s, I'm amazed at not just how much great scholarship of the past is found in Dialogues pages, but also the voices in Dialogue end up being some significant voices in tracing this, you know, alternate trajectory. Um, so look, dig into the, the free Dialogue archives for, for more excellent work. Ben, we want to thank you for your time, your expertise, and your uh, talents in sharing this message with us tonight. It's been a fascinating historical discussion that I think helps to frame a lot of what's happening continuing in the church today. Uh, in, in many ways, we're still working out and fighting over these some, some of these exact same issues. Um, we'll go ahead and conclude our uh, formal discussion for tonight with a closing prayer from Andy Pitcher Davis. And after that, uh, we'll stick around for just a few minutes of uh, informal conversation. Uh, but thank you to all of our audience who attended tonight, uh, uh, those who are uh, gonna be listening to this at a later point as well. Thank you for your support of dialogue and for your interest in this kind of work. Uh, we'll go ahead and turn the time over to Andy Pitcher Davis. Our Father in heaven, we become for thee this evening, very grateful for Brother Penn's work, Park's words, his, his reminder of our, our obligation uh, as true Mormons, true Christians, to engage in activism, to engage in politics, to engage in true scholarship and openness. This particularly comes at a time on the eve that we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King tomorrow. And in his words, our God is marching on. How long? Not long. How long, not long, not long a time made shorter by following the tradition and examples of our former Mormon Relief Society activists, activists such as Amy Brown Lyman, 
the ones more interested in cause than in personal reputations and even and accolades. We ask, Father, at this time as a body of saints this week, for a blessing of physical safety upon all people of all creeds, all religions, all races, physical safety for all people of our country this week as we celebrate our constitution, as we celebrate a document important to Mormonism, our freedom to practice our religion, not just in our fundamentalism, but because of our fundamentalism, we've reminded the manifestos are those and these sorts of things and, and these freedoms are such things that drove our people, our faith to different countries, to Mexico, to Canada. We are grateful for this document. We're grateful for thee, Father. We ask for these blessings in the holy name of thy son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, Andy.